This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Jamda On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda On The Go for January 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce our new co-editors-in-chief of Jamda, Drs. Barbara Resnick and Dr. Paul Katz. Dr. Katz is not with us today, though. Uh, he'll be with us next month. And as I mentioned on our final podcast with Drs. Sloan and Brown, we're going to be trying a bit of a different format. And this will be one that includes discussion with authors of some of the articles in the current issue that's being uh, talked about. And we hope you'll like this interactive style. It's going to be a little bit more spontaneous, and it'll be nice to talk to the content experts who actually did the research. So Dr. Barbara Resnick, she's a PhD, CRNP, and a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of, of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program, and co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. Barb holds the Sonia Zaporkin Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. Today, Dr. Resnick is with us, and uh, congratulations on uh, your new editorship. I think you and Paul are going to do great. And we're also honored to have the author of one of our featured papers from this issue, Nadare Purat, PhD. Dr. Purat is a professor of health policy and management at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and associate at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. Dr. Purat examines disparities in access to care, the healthcare delivery systems, and innovations in delivery of care, including primary care redesign and system integration across the life course. Dr. Porat focuses on identifying policy solutions to reduce barriers to equitable and accessible care. She is the principal investigator of the National Coordinating Center for Resource Centers for Minority Aging Research, RCMAR, which support the NIA's overall goal of increasing diversity of the aging research workforce. So it's really great to have uh, both of you. Welcome, Drs. Resnick and Porat. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. And likewise, it's a pleasure. And we're excited about this new format. Yeah, it should be fun. So today, your editors have chosen four articles that we'll be highlighting from the January 2023 issue of JAMDA that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. These topics include a primary care-based telepsychiatry intervention that Dr. Parat will be discussing, the effects of light therapy on sleep in older adults, the value of virtual interactions in combating depression, and a study correlating salt intake with cognitive decline that makes a bold assertion uh, that excessive dietary salt impairs cognitive function. 
So we'll uh, be talking about those, but we're going to kick it off with your paper, Dr. Porat. I don't believe you and I have ever met other than just now on Zoom, but I do know some of your co-authors on this paper very well, including one of my geriatrician mentors, Dr. Dan Osterweil, uh, and then Dominic Lim, who's been a great interim CEO and board member for our state AMDA affiliate, the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine, or CalTCM, and Dr. Romila Batra. So uh, a great uh, group of co-authors. And uh, your work here seems to demonstrate a real value in this primary care-based telepsych program, uh, at least in selected Medicare Advantage uh, populations. And, you know, before we do that, I'm going to just take a moment of personal privilege. Uh, uh, today is my dad, Dr. Joel Steinberg's 89th birthday. And I only mention that because uh, he is still working four days a week and he does telepsychiatry. He's a psychiatrist and, uh, um, you know, I'm in awe of him. He took the addiction medicine boards uh, last year and scored in the top quartile in three out of the four sections. So I think his brain's still functioning pretty well. But uh, anyway, we're, we're talking geriatrics, we're talking telepsych. So I thought I'd be remiss if I didn't wish my dad a happy 89th birthday. So uh, yeah, anyway, let's get down to it. So uh, what was the impetus that you all had for exploring this issue in the first place, Dr. Porat? Thank you. And and happy birthday to your dad. I'm I'm always in awe of people at uh, and the accomplishments that that you mentioned. Uh, if I could be as as uh, bright at age 89, um, I will be extremely happy. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Um, <laughs> Well, so so the 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 research um, this this particular project came about because we wanted to understand um, the impact of the this pilot program that uh, Scan had, was supporting, and whether or not the pilot had the intended effect, and whether it should be a new model of care delivery in addition to in person care. We wanted to go beyond the. Uh, typical assessment of what's the impact of this program on uh, clinical um, uh, outcomes, you know, uh, improvements in mental health status. But we also wanted to know whether the program is associated with other um, changes in health healthcare utilization of the individual, sort of a big picture across different settings of care. Right. Um, so, yes. So, um, and were there any challenges that you encountered in sort of uh, setting up the study and then actually carrying it out? Well, there's, uh, so from the evaluation perspective, I guess, you you know, I don't know whether there's a single study that doesn't have a challenge. And <laughs> the greatest challenge usually is having the right kind of data and enough data for you to be able to talk about the impact of the program, independent of what you know, what else might be happening in the background. So, um, you know, our, our sample was small, but that was because the program also was, you know, it's an initial setting up of a program and um, you don't want to implement something like that without uh, trying it out and see how well it does, how practical it is and iron out all the difficulties. So we started with a small sample. Um, well, unfortunately, it didn't allow us to dig deeper into understanding whether there were subgroups of patients that 
um, did better or did not benefit as much as other subgroups. So we, we couldn't dig in as much as we would have liked to. The, um, the other challenges are, you know, with, with uh, we, we really needed to have the PHQ measurement over time, but, you know, in real world practice, you can't necessarily collect that information all the time for a number of different reasons. So that was a bit of a challenge we had to work around. We, we lacked data on socioeconomics or other aspects of a patient's well-being um, because we were using the administrative data. We did not have the capacity to sort of interview patients or do anything in addition um, to the data that we were using. And, um, you know, and similar to other types of studies, you really need to follow patients over time, but that's not always possible for a variety of reasons. Patients may not be um, uh, needing uh, telepsych visits for, you know, too many of them. So they may not, you know, you may not have data on them for the longer term and so on and so forth. So it's most of the challenges are data related to be able to capture what really is happening with the patients. Um, I don't think that's really unique to what we were doing. Right, right. Well, so, I mean, it was kind of a pilot, but it seems like a, a promising pilot that, that suggests some kind of scalability, right? Uh, Certainly. I mean, we, we, you know, hopefully the uh, individuals that are listening to this podcast have had a chance to look at the analysis. And we definitely saw changes in uh, utilization of services in the direction that we were hoping to see, sort of a re, uh, re uh, I don't know what the correct word is, realignment of um, you, you want patients to get the best care that they need in the right settings. And I think that's our findings indicate that that indeed could have happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, in attention to, uh, you know, mental health issues and concerns, uh, certainly something that uh, uh, has implications uh, with equity and, and all that sort of thing. And so um, what are your take home messages from the study? What were the bullet points you want our listeners to know if they haven't read the whole study? And how, how do you think these findings might have the potential to change clinical practice? Right. So, you know, it's not, I, I think everybody in this field and uh, other fields are, 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 are alert to the fact that we do have certain, certainly we have access issues to mental health services, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. Uh, we just need more of a workforce that are available to all the different populations that need the care. So we, I think our findings do provide some evidence that telepsychiatry is indeed a viable solution to expand access to needed mental health services. Um, and while it's remote, you could still uh, integrate it with within care, within the rest of the care the patient gets, certainly within primary care in our example. And it does have the potential to improve mental health status, uh, reduce unnecessary visits to other providers in other settings. I think those are some of the really high level uh, takeaways. Um, and uh, to your second question of um, how it might change clinical practice, you know, we, we have um, not really thought about telemedicine in the past. And when I say we haven't thought about it, I think we have to say pre-COVID, right. we really didn't choose t 
telehealth as the primary mode of healthcare delivery. It was always a secondary option to, um, you know, in, in certain cases, you know, the, the, the whole system also was not set up. Uh, payers often, you know, payment for telepsychiatry may not have been on parity. It, it just, the a number of issues that had, had not really helped using this mode of healthcare delivery, but with the uh, COVID pandemic, of course, all of those, um, um, it, it really showed us that in some areas of care, telemedicine could be the primary modality. And in fact, it could really work just as well for everybody, right. regardless of age, particularly, you know, because other evidence shows that for older populations, there, there are additional barriers to use of telehealth. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a lot. And I think, uh, there's no question there's going to be utility there for you know mental health and other uh, implications. I think telemedicine's kind of here to stay uh, in spite of some of the reimbursement issues. So uh, what do you suggest as a next step in research here? or do we need more research? Should we just go out, go on into implementation? Uh, what do you think? Well, um, so, you know, I think that um, the evidence that we provided for the perspective of uh, a scan and the medical group that was implementing the pilot program was enough for them to continue to expand and integrate the program at a, a more uh, permanent level. Um, so, however, from the broader research perspective, you know, it would really it would be good to repeat the study at a larger scale um, and with more patients that and longer follow-up periods, we were not able to capture enough time uh, for the patients to see how their mental health might have improved or what other kinds of longer-term impact it had on their uh, service use, et cetera. Um, it would be also good to repeat such a study using a control group so that you, you would really be able to attribute the findings to the intervention, to people who are receiving telepsychiatry, and also in other areas of the country, because you want to make sure that the, the model works just as well elsewhere. Right. Well, great. Uh, let's see, Dr. Resnick, uh, any comments from you or, or would you like to address this paper? Sure. And thank you so much for this work. You know, often in JAMDO, we try and look at papers. If they're not done in long-term care, what are long-term care settings, typical long-term care settings, I'll clarify, um, how would they impact those settings, how might they be used? And for those who haven't read the paper, I, I think it's important to just acknowledge, and I'm going to do this for you, acknowledge the outcomes, because they were pretty impressive, even without a control group. There was a significant decline of 0.24 per patient for six-month period time frame. Uh, in outpatient uh, services and the number of ED visits and hospitalizations declined. So with that in mind, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you think translation into a um, more typical 
long-term care setting, whether it be assisted living, nursing home, even I'll say senior housing, because I believe that's the next long-term care setting. But how do you see that working? What might be some of the barriers, challenges, or facilitators? Yes, thank you, Barbara, for bringing up some of the outcomes. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, we, we the program that we were looking at was um, addressing problems or barriers to access in the ambulatory care setting. So these are individuals that are mobile. They could... They, they were able to, you know, come to the providers. Uh, the, this particular program um, was um, organized in so that individuals will go to their primary care provider. And then in there, they were able to use the telemedicine um, uh, equipment and co connect with a psychiatrist. So it was really designed for our patient. Uh, but you can, it, it is really not difficult to see how such a uh, uh, breaking down those access barriers are, is actually going to be even more valuable for populations that could have mobility issues or they were, they, they may be bedbound or homebound or uh, just generally have challenges. Um, so in nursing home settings, for example, you know, um, individuals are, you know, can't get up and go to an outpatient provider when they need services. And I don't know how many times you actually get psychiatrists go and visit a patient in a in a, an, an institutional setting. So this really provides that opportunity without compromising the care that the patient can receive. Um, I, I think it's a tremendous, it has tremendous potential for uh, institutional settings, for settings where um, individuals uh, may not really have as much mobility. Um, the, 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 the issues that have to be considered are um, you know, how do you set it up? Let's say in a nursing home, you do, it's not difficult to get, you know, everybody could have a computer and you could connect somebody through an online portal to a provider, a psychiatrist, but um, you also want to make sure that the records are aligned or linked so that if a psychiatrist, for example, is seeing a patient using telepsychiatry, they have access to the patient records, they can enter the data, the primary care providers or other providers that are taking care of the patient are also able to look at the record and um, be able to you know, truly integrate care. I think that's the challenge that has to be considered along, you know, expanding access is fantastic, but we all know that if you don't link providers together to come together and take care of the patient, uh, accounting for all of their needs, then we're not really doing well. We're not getting the kind of outcomes that we want. So I think those are, those are just looking at um, the basic Access is one part of it, but we also want to make sure that it gets integrated. Yeah, that's that's that is great. I, I just want to raise as somebody who was also often uh, the facilitator of you know internet-based connections for residents in long-term care, 
and working with long-term care staff on the receiving side. One thing that would be really interesting to do, hopefully one day in future work, if you apply it to a long-term care setting, is to think about um, how to motivate the staff around this. It takes a lot more staff time than you realize to coordinate these visits. Mm -hmm. And um, also you talked a little bit about delivery, but I think we also need to think about receipt. And we really as well need better computer equipment for older adults to be able to receive the information, to see the person, to hear the person and all of that. But it's really great work and exciting to think about extending it. Um, And we see it certainly in psychiatry, as well as um, I found it very exciting during COVID to get specialists, medical specialists, whoever gets a cardiologist to come to long-term care, right? Right. But but you could get them on the computer. And um, so really, really great stuff. And we, we certainly look forward to you doing more and uh, sharing it with us at GMDA. Yeah. Um, any final words, Dr. Porat? Uh, we really appreciate you being here. No, I'm. I'm. Thank you for highlighting this this article. I think we were we we're very happy that we were able to show that such a program could have uh, really the desired outcomes, both from the clinical perspective and um, from the perspective of helping patients get the care that they need. So, thank you for highlighting this study. Yeah, thank you. And, and, you know, thanks to SCAN and SCAN Foundation for all the great work that they're doing. Uh, it's uh, much appreciated, yes. touching a lot of lives. Yeah. Yes, and I did want to thank my co-authors, of course, they're, they've been tremendous in both conceptualizing and uh, thinking through how we might do uh, the best study with the available information and um, provide something that's of value in the field. All right. Well, Nadi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for 2023 to gain access to our live and archived webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, and Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. Um, All right. So let's uh, move on. You know, the rest of our papers are all international. And so our second paper is going to be a systematic review of the use of light therapy to improve sleep quality for older adults living in residential care settings. And this is out of the Chengdu Medical College in China. Uh, So Barb, please tell us about it. So basically this was a systematic review of 21 papers. And it's based off the premise that is not really news to any of us. There's been associations between light and exposure to light and regulation of sleep rhythms. 
And lots of studies have investigated whether light therapy can improve sleep disorders in older adults. It's always been up and down, right? Some studies show efficacy, some not so much. So good rationale to do a systematic review, which is why we thought it would be worthy of highlighting and publishing. What did they find in this review? Well, basically the efficacy of light therapy was really found to be affected by a number of things, which is why probably the study results are all over the place, right? Yep. It depends on length of exposure to the light, which could be anywhere from 30 minutes to 24 hours based on the studies they looked at. The intensity of light, the different luxes they're exposed to, the equipment used to expose the person, and then also how long the treatment was. So did it go on for a month? Did it go on for two days or whatever it was? And basically, as many systematic reviews do, the conclusion was that we need more research looking at those different factors. And I think this probably could be done with a strong focus on even a well-designed study that looked at treatment fidelity and how long people were exposed, could tolerate exposure, and what impact it could have. So unfortunately, the conclusion here is yes, you should definitely use it or no, you should not. Um, but I think some some support certainly for an intervention that I know I've seen tried many times in long-term care, as I'm sure many of you had. So Carl, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about that one. No, I'm kind of with you on that. I think, uh, you know, it's intuitively, it makes sense that uh, light therapy can be helpful, uh, you know, for a variety of things, sleep, depression, uh, and um, I'm a big proponent of natural light if you, mm -hmm. if you have the ability to do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think um, more research will be needed and uh, we'll look forward to seeing that as it comes along. And in the meantime, you know, if we can get people uh, light early in the day and so on, uh, then we should uh, do our best to uh, to do that. So, um, all right. Uh, our third paper, also from China, takes an interesting perspective on salt intake. So, Dr. Resnick, please tell us what you got out of this one. Yeah, this is an interesting paper. I think uh, it raised raised questions just by the title. And the underlying premise is that excessive dietary salt intake would exacerbate cognitive impairment and increase dementia risk in older adults. And it's actually a very well done study. It's done on community dwelling older adults, which of course we always have that, um, that difference but has the potential to be applied to long-term care residents. And essentially they found after following these folks for 11 years, which is impressive, yeah. that if they, and 
after they controlled for blood pressure, so they controlled for hypertension, they controlled for age, and they controlled for apolipoprotein E. They reported that those with higher salt intake were about one and a half times more likely to become cognitively impaired than those with low salt intake. So, I mean, the conclusion to me was one more reason maybe you want to watch your salt intake besides <laughs> cardiac. Um, you know, I, I certainly, and this was done, I think, as Carl said, these are all international uh, authors, and this was done in an Asian population. And my first thought was it really does need to be done in a more heterogeneous population because there may be some genetic differences in salt use because uh, we, we see that even between um, white and black older adults. So um, I think that's something to think about. And, you know, I, at, at this point, I personally wouldn't change my practice on one study, but I do think um, we, we can look forward to maybe seeing more on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a pretty big study, right? 2000 yeah, people yeah. over 11 years. And I, I mean, a relative risk of 1.5. I mean, that's, that's, a, you know, it's not like 1.1 or something. It's, uh, it's something that would definitely give you pause. And uh, I do think, it, you know, to me, it's a bit of a stretch to, to attribute it to the salt. I mean, there's clearly an association, people who eat more salt have a, a higher uh, risk of incident dementia. Uh, but is it the salt that's causing it? Is there something else? I don't know. And what you said, we don't know what the baseline salt intake there is compared to other places. Uh, so I, I'm not sure I can convince myself of a strong causal connection, but just the same, I think I might cut back a little bit on my own salt intake, you know, kind of, kind of just to be on the safe side. Right. Yeah, And I would throw in there too, because, you know, it's very difficult to measure salt intake. A number one, people, you know, getting dietary reports is crazy, but they actually looked at urine um, sodium. So it, um, again, it was quite a well done study uh, in terms of the measures they used and the length of time, but I agree more needs to be done here. Yeah, you know, I saw an, an, a study not too long ago that indicated that people with kind of low grade sort of borderline hypernatremia also uh, had a higher mortality risk and all this, you know, sodium of 142, 143. And it just makes you wonder because I do like my salt. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, good. So this last article, uh, this one's from Japan. This one relates to the impact of COVID and living alone and looks at how virtual interactions correlate with depressive symptoms or, or alleviating depressive symptoms in this uh, population. Uh, so Barb, what's new in this article and what does it point out? Um, so again, it, this is a little bit of a takeoff on our first article, given the, the mm -hmm. use of sort of computer-based interactions, non-face-to-face. Right. This also was a relatively large study over, well, about a thousand older adults during COVID, and it was March 2020 to October 2020, so early COVID. Yeah, yeah the bad time. Yeah. Where, the real lockdown time, yeah. Right, right. And scary time, lockdown time, and people were really adhering. So I think that is important to keep in mind. 
um, but it is again community based and these were basically they found those who were living alone were more likely to be depressed no surprise there right we right. know that but they found that this was really helped by the non-face-to-face -face interactions again not really new news but I, I felt like it was great confirmation yet again pretty much as I said earlier, that we need to facilitate these types of interactions for older adults in the community, but you know, equally important, if not more so, for those in the nursing homes. And it's thinking about innovative ways to get them non-face-to-face -face interactions, because clearly uh, this study is yet again just one more and there are thousands of COVID-related studies now um, and many showing similar findings where if we got people equipment, if we got them exposure, they did better. Yeah, well, and uh, I'm clearly um, isolation is is harmful. And, you know, even though people in, in long-term care settings where there are caregiver staff that can give some, you know, interpersonal relationships, it's not the same as having a family member. And I know all of our listeners, or most of our listeners anyway, the clinicians, uh, we observed firsthand how uh, meaningful those interactions, virtual interactions with families were, even in people with fairly significant dementia, if they could make out who the person was uh, talking on the iPad or what have you, uh, it was really meaningful. And I think it helped kind of keep some people afloat. Uh, so I agree, Barb, to the extent that we can facilitate that. And, you know, you mentioned staff time, that's always an issue, but, uh, um, but certainly uh, I think uh, it's, it's something that needs to remain uh, part of our, our armamentarium for, um, uh, you know, making people not feel alone. Yeah, and this this is an intervention that really takes a team. I, I you know, I'm sitting here recalling, um, you know, activities people got involved, social work got involved. You know, it was all hands on deck. Yep. And it's it's also fascinating what happened through COVID that all of a sudden there was access to all of these iPads and other resources where it was virtually impossible before, right? Yeah. So, um, we, we've come a long way and it certainly is exciting, but I still think we need better resources for this population. Yep. Yep. Well, great. Um, well, any final words before we wrap it up, Barb? No, I, I just hope you'll all take a minute, maybe delve deeper into these papers. Well, great. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jammed on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of our new co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Paul Katz and Barbara Resnick, and with the hard work from our whole team of associate editors, reviewers, and authors like Dr. Porat et al., JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an influential resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. So please take a look at the January 2023 issue. And behalf of, on behalf of Jamda On The Go, I just want to give thanks again to our recently retired duo of editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman. Uh, uh, Godspeed to, to the both of you. And I'd like to thank Drs. Resnick and Porat again for sharing their time and expertise with Jamda On The Go today. 
So references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda, that's J-A-M-D-A.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.